Burt Reynolds has been in the news a bunch uh, and there's some good quotes he has and I liked this one. When he turned 60, somebody asked him, how do you feel about getting older? He answered, great, I love it. They said, why? He said, you can only hold your stomach in for so many years. (laughs) That was awesome. Here's what Galatians is. You can stop holding your stomach in. You can stop all these things that we do to try to like project something that we're actually not, right? You can stop the worry and the anxiety that comes from that kind of a life. Um, If you follow like stocks or investment stuff, they're saying this, if you wanna invest in something, invest in what they're calling anxiety consumerism. Have you heard of that? They're saying right now, the number one mental illness in America is anxiety. That we just feel with this, just just, ah, anxiety. (laughs) And so now there's all these products coming out Right, essential oils. If you have this essential oil, you won't be, money, you know, whatever. Have you heard of the gravity blanket? So the gravity blanket was this idea somebody had that it's this really heavy blanket that you put on yourself and it mimics being in the womb. You know, when life was just perfect. Before you were even born, like, oh, yee. <laughs> so, I mean, you just think that is so stupid. Just get a heavier blanket. So they put this, Go fund me out there, this Kickstarter thing. And they wanted 20 grand. They got like 2 million. I gotta have one of those. I need a, gra- I'll pay for that. I mean, that's, ins- that's where we're at right now. Like all these things, these gadgets that people need, adult coloring books. They're flying off the shelves because people are like, it just calms me down. I just go to the coffee shop and I sip my latte and I color. <laughs> all right, there's tons of it. Why? Because we're all, we have this just kind of, Well, I think a much better way to calm down is Galatians. Like it is this gravity blanket for you. Like, come on, what are you so freaked out about? And I, in my own thinking, I title Galatians, the gospel for believers. It's you can let your stomach out. That's the good news. You don't have to have this thing, this weight on you. And I don't know about you, but I never tire of hearing the gospel. Never. And I explain it like this, like wives. Do you ever get tired of your husband telling you you're beautiful and I love you? Are you ever like, you know what? You told me that last year. You don't have to tell it anymore. (laughs) No, you want to hear it every single day. That's like the gospel. The gospel is God saying, hey, you're beautiful and I love you. And there's a reason why. So we get to a section and we won't make it far today but it is the meat of the problem that led to Paul being unplugged. And it begins in verse six. Galatians 1, 6. I am astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be a 
cursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is what got Paul unplugged. So four things to note here. Number one, he's dumbfounded. I am astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you into the grace of Christ. He's astonished. He cannot believe it. Like of all the things that I would have imagined happening to you, this is the one I could never imagine. It'd be like learning that Ronald Reagan was actually a communist. Be like, what? Who'd have thought that? Or that Barack Obama has decided to become a Republican. What? Or that Donald Trump apologizes. What? (laughs) I'm astonished, right? Now note one thing, and I just noticed this. Maybe it's my denseness. But what did they desert? I've always said it was the gospel, but it's not. You so quickly deserted him, Jesus. They didn't leave a church. They didn't leave a movement. They weren't moving from uh, like one doctrine system to another, you know, Calvinism to Arminianism or Wesleyanism, or they left dispensationalism, went to covenant, you know, theology. That's not it. It's you left Jesus. I'm astonished that because of the direction you're going, you love Jesus. Like Paul says, I cannot believe you would do that. Like, listen, it will never work. I tried it for a lot of my life. It does not work. And he's tearing his hair out, dumbfounded. I'm astonished that you deserted him. Number two, and you are turning to a different gospel. Is there a different gospel? Right, verse seven, not that there is one. Now this is where as believers, we often get into trouble with unbelievers. It's the exclusive claims of Jesus. I'm the way, I'm the truth. No one gets to the father but by me, right? It's the exclusivity of Christianity. It's one of the most divisive things today. I cut out a quote Uh, by Joe Klein, he's an author for the time, you know, major, major publication. And he wrote this, quote, anyone who believes that there are inferior religions is a right-wing fundamentalist, end quote. Now, I know we live in Southern Oregon, so you're like, white wing fundamentalist? Dude, sign me up. That's totally what I am. Right on, rocking. Okay, in New York, that'd be like saying you're a terrorist. Right? This is not a compliment. He's saying you are the worst kind of person. And I read that and I remember thinking like, really? So Joe Klein, Jim Jones and the people's temple and the slaughter of a thousand people That's just as legitimate as, let's say, Mother Teresa and the Sisters of Charity. Really? Hmm. Or Marshall Herf Applewhite 
and the Heaven's Gate crew that committed suicide because they thought they were gonna join a spacecraft, spacecraft hiding behind Hale-Bopp. That's just as legitimate. Or David Koresh and the Branch Davidians where he's marrying 12-year-olds. That's just as legitimate as Tim Keller's Redeemer Church in New York. Really? I don't think so. But the idea that is constantly like pressed on us is this idea that, listen, all roads lead to the top of the mountain. All paths get you to God. Like all religions, they just, they just coexist, right? They're supposed to coexist. The only difficulty with that is religions contradict each other. If you actually study different religions, they absolutely contradict each other. I'll give you one example. I have a ton of them. So I was at uh, the Dome of the Rock about two years ago with my wife. And around the top of the Dome of the Rock, there's this Arabic writing. And what it says around the Dome of the Rock, which is the third most holy site in Islam, what it says around that is this, God is not begotten, nor does he beget. Now, what is that saying? It's a direct attack against Jesus, right? Because the Bible says that that's what he is. He's the begotten one, right? So either Islam is right and Christianity is wrong or Christianity is right and Islam, they can't both be correct. So this idea that, you know, it's just all have to get along. Well, the problem is they contradict each other. And then the ideologies that religion espouse, they have certain ramifications that we as Imago Dei, you can evaluate and be like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'll give you an example of this. This is from John Lennox, who, if you don't know him, he is a brilliant math scholar at Oxford who loves Jesus and he is probably top dude. So he's a guy that will be able to debate like a Richard Dawkins, who's the high priest of atheism. Like Richard Dawkins won't debate anybody else. They're not good enough for him, but John Lennox is. So in this debate with Richard Dawkins, Dawkins brings this up and this is what Lennox says to him. It's classic. He goes, okay, Richard, let's imagine you're in the Amazon jungle and you meet a tribe what kind of religion would you want that tribe to have? Would you want them to have the Christian ethic that says, love your neighbor as yourself? Or would you rather have them have this ethic which says, eat your neighbor for dinner? <laughs> because it will matter to you greatly which religion they espouse, right? And that's humorous. But if you actually boil it down, it becomes sometimes very brutal. So I've spent a lot of time in India five trips, multiple, multiple weeks there. And most of the area that I've been in is Hindu. And the people are loving, I love them. They're awesome people. But the problem with it is Hinduism believes in what's called reincarnation. And on top of that, they have this system called the dowry where parents, in order to get their daughter married, have to pay an extraordinary amount of money to get the daughter married. Or she ends up in some really bad circumstances. So here's what those two things do. When a poor family, a mom's giving birth, and it turns out to be a baby girl, what they will do way too frequently is they will put that baby girl in boiling water and kill her. Here's what they say. Well, prayerfully, she'll be reincarnated and come back as a boy and we'll keep her next time, right? that what your ideologies are 
the things that you espouse and believe, they're gonna have practical ramifications on how you live your life. That's, that's the truth. So I think as humans, we can actually evaluate and be like, that's actually inferior. That way is not right. And praise God, um, the group we work there with is called Body of Christ Ministries. They have said to this entire region, give us every single girl. And they have this orphanage, just packed, it's all girls, all these little girls, tons of them. They're con- it, 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 like every month or so they get a new girl. And they're like, we're fine with that. Because our ethic is every single human bears the stamp of God, the Imago Dei. And because of that, they are priceless. And it leads them to say, we'll spend whatever we have to spend to take care of every single child in this place. It matters. It really matters. And so there's this idea now that that in order for us to exist, we have to be tolerant, right? And tolerance today, here's, here's the definition of tolerance today. Tolerance is there's no absolute truth. That if you believe that, hey, that's great for you, but I believe this over here. And we're both just gonna believe what we wanna believe. That's tolerance today. But that has not been historically tolerance. That actually comes from the enlightenment period in the 18th century. Tolerance historically has been this. It's been how you tolerate the people that you disagree with. That's actually tolerance, right? In order to be tolerating somebody, you're not agreeing with them. It's how do you tolerate people you disagree with? And as Christians, here's what we're supposed to do. Jesus would say, you love, serve, and even die for people that you disagree with. That's the ethic of Christianity, the most tolerant religion on earth. Not always are Christians though that tolerant. We're supposed to be. You love, serve, and if necessary, you die for a Hindu, you die for a Muslim, you die for a Buddhist, because that's what I did. That's the most tolerant thing in the world. So here we get this exclusive, there is no other, this is it, period. And the ramification of the the good news is supposed to be, we become like a kind of people that are so tolerant that we love, serve, and die for people that we even disagree with. And historically, if you look at missions, that's exactly what they did. They'd go into places, very brutal, and they would often die. And it was their blood and the way that they did that that actually opened up the door for Jesus in those areas. So number one, I'm dumbfounded you moved. There is no other gospel. Number three, it's this word distort. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The word distort is a Greek money word. It's metastrepho. It literally means reverse. These guys that are coming in and telling you this stuff, they've actually reversed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when I meet people for the first time and I get in a conversation with them and I can't quite figure out where they stand theologically, you know what I'll do? I've been doing this for about 15 years. I will ask them two questions. First question is, does God love you? Second question that follows it, if he does, why does he love you? 
And based on the answer that people give me, I can usually kind of figure out, aha, this is where you're at. Well, of course God loves me. God loves everybody, okay? Universalism. Or, of course God loves me. Man, I put a hundred bucks in the offering plate. I always tell them, now that doesn't make God love you. It makes me love you, thank you very much. <laughs> but that does not make God love you. Those answers, what they tell me is, has, has the gospel been reverted in your mind? Because once you start saying, God loves me because I, once you say that, whatever you fill in the blank as, you turn Jesus into a cosmic Santa Claus. He's making a list, checking it twice, seeing who's naughty and nice, right? Seeing who's in and seeing who's out. Once you do that, and then the moment you do that, because you will blow it, you're always waiting for the lump of coal. It's coming. Oh, great. And you kind of go through life then almost like a beat dog, just kind of whimpering, waiting. When's the next blow coming? I'm gonna flat tire on the way to work, I think, today. My train is gonna blow up. My car's gonna blow up. My kid's gonna get the flu. You're just always waiting because that's the way you perceive God. That God is like having this list. If you did something wrong, punishment is coming for you. Now, if that was true, and there's almost 7 billion people on earth, how busy would God be? Right? Tire, tire, tire. Tranny, tranny, tranny. Uh, flu, flu, flu. Epidemic, you're all dead. I mean, that, that would be what he'd have to do. It's just nutty. Okay? But most people get into this thing. I call it the covenant of works. It's deep in the human psyche that we have this idea that well, if we do this, then God's got to do this. And if I don't, I'm going to be punished. That's in me. I have to identify it when it's doing it to me and root it out. And there's a verse that I have for people that say, I think God's punishing me. I say, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Okay. First Thessalonians chapter five, Verse nine says this, you are no longer a child of wrath. That whatever wrath that you deserved, and there is, it was taken from you and Jesus, God in the flesh, took it on himself. And you are no longer a child of wrath. If you struggle with this idea of God punishing you, memorize that section. Because what it tells you is this, it's not God punishing you. Whatever might be happening to you right now, I know this for a fact, if you've accepted Jesus, it is not God punishing you, period. I know that theologically, okay? So people always say, but doesn't God like my good works? That's my answer. Isaiah 64, verse six. All your righteousness is as, right? Not all your evil, this is if you could take everything really good you did, the time that you were kind to somebody, you donated a kidney to a complete stranger, you pile that up and God says, filthy rags apart from Jesus. Because motives are in there and there's issues in there. They're not pure, right? That's what it is. Listen, your acceptance by God is not based on these things. And theologically, the perversion of the gospel is this. It's two big words that you should know justification and sanctification. The gospel says this, you are justified, which is simply this, 
accepted by God, brought into the covenant of Abraham, brought into his family, now a son, a daughter of King Jesus. That's what you are now. You're part of the family. You're accepted by God, justification. Freely by the grace and work of Jesus on the cross, period. That's how you get in, justification. And then sanctification is this. It means, put it simply, behaving like God, becoming godly, having your character transformed to becoming like Christ, having him give you his spirit that begins to guide you and work in you and produce in your life the fruit of the spirit, which is love and joy and peace and long suffering and meekness and temperance. That's sanctification. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, says this, the proof that I've been justified is the fact that I'm being sanctified. The fact that I can look at my life and be like, man, I was a moron back then. Not that I'm perfect now, but man, I'm being changed. Wow, right? So you're justified freely by God's grace, accepted totally by him. And because you're his kid, he says, I'm gonna change you. I'll make you like me. Justification, then sanctification. Okay, the perversion, the reverse of the gospel is this. Sanctification, then justification. So sanctification is, uh uh-oh, I better do some things right. I better make myself pretty. I better wear the right kind of clothes. I better put some money in the offering. I better do all this stuff so that hopefully God sees me and is like, hey, look at you, man. I'll adopt you. You're pretty good. And Paul says, that's exactly what may be unplugged. That's what they're saying to you that you need to pretty yourself up first. You need to be doing all these things first. Then maybe then God will accept you. That's a perversion, a distortion of the gospel. It reverses it, okay? When you get this, and I'll repeat this over and over and over, and it just, it took probably, I'm gonna say 150 times of me studying this before I think it really started to be like, wait a second. Wait, what is that? Wait a second. And it takes a while. When you get it, here's what happens to you. It like changes everything. I'll give you a couple ways it did for me. I used to go to the Bible and I'd read these lists where it says, these are the bad guys. Ever read those lists? I'll read one for you. It's in Galatians, we'll get to it. So here's the bad guys. Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I love that ending. You know, I'm just getting started here. I can just, I'm like, man, it seems like you covered everything right there. Now there's a bunch more I can actually talk about. So I'd read those lists and I'd be like, yeah, those guys, those bad dudes out there. I can find names for each one of them, right? Hitler is that dude and Osama bin Laden's that dude and my neighbor is that guy, man, right? And then one day, I think when it clicked, I went, oh my goodness, that's me. That's me. That all we like sheep have gone astray. And that changed the way I viewed people. Instead of seeing them as, oh, you bad person, I began to see them as, no, that's someone that needs the receiving of God's grace just like I do. That we're, the, we're, we're, we're humans, that's what we are. Glorious ruins, 
And, and it changed my perspective on how I deal with people and, and probably my compassion on them. It was massive for me. And then the second thing it did was this. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, that God no longer imputes to me my unrighteousness. Impute is, a, is an accounting term, right? Like an accountant count, count stuff up. So God doesn't do this anymore. Like Matt, 15 coveting thoughts, 37 hateful thoughts, 113 lies, 547 selfish thoughts, and that's before breakfast. God doesn't do that. He keeps no record of my wrong. That's an amazing fact. Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Isaiah 118, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Isaiah 43, 25, one of my favorites says this. It says, I will pardon your iniquities for my sake. Why does God want to pardon our iniquities? Why is it? It's for my sake. It's like God does not want to see his kids as broken ruins. And God says, I'm choosing not to see you that way anymore for my sake. I want to see you as my son. I want to see you as my daughter. I want to forget that junk. Micah 7, 19, right? I am casting your iniquities, your transgressions into the sea. I will remember them no more. Brilliant. There's tons of those verses. When it started to click to me, I was like, oh my goodness. God chooses to see me as white, as clean, as his son. It was radical, radical. You have to, in your brain, not distort, not reverse the gospel. Because one of the ways that I think our flesh does it and the enemy of our flesh does it is constantly trying to get those distorted. And once it happens to you, you and I get in this anxious, kind of worried, frantic mentality that's not healthy for you and does not produce the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, it's, wow, God's grace is so good. Jesus, thank you for saving me because this list is all about me. Thank you, you are so good. Fourthly, and lastly on this section, twice he says about these people that they should be accursed. It's the Greek word, anathema. It would be modern today, we would say, I wish they would go to H-E double hockey stick. That's what he's saying. And notice this. He says, if an angel comes, have you ever talked to an angel? I have, I married her. (laughs) Always cheap and I'll do it again. So let's say another angel comes. Let's say they come right here. And the Daily Courier shows up and KDRV News shows up and KLDR shows up and whoever else. And they're all like, whoa, an angel. And they start to say, how do we know this angel's real? And so some redneck tries to stab it with a knife or something. I don't, you know, does it bleed? (laughs) How would you tell if an angel's real? Ask it who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And if the angel replies wrongly, you kick it out. Because 2 Corinthians 11 says, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So Paul is saying, listen, 
There can be things that seem so right and so true, but listen, they're wrong. If they're wrong on Jesus and wrong on the gospel, they are wrong. And then he includes himself. If we, I, Paul, the apostle, if I come back to you guys and I am preaching a different gospel to you, get rid of me. Tell me to go to hell. That's how serious he is. If I start preaching a different gospel, fire me. 100% fire me. I have toyed with this idea. I'm just not brave enough to actually do it. But I've toyed with taking a Sunday and actually preaching a total heretical message. Making it super engaging, super funny. So, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, right? And then seeing what happens. Seeing if there's outrage, and I hope there is. Up an elder grabs me and says, you cannot preach that here. I hope you guys stand up in the middle and say, dude, you're wrong. That is not correct. Because that's what we're supposed to be. Defenders of the gospel of truth. When it's not truth, I don't care who's saying it. I don't care how charismatic they are. I don't care how right they've been in the past. Paul would say, yeah, I've been right in the past, but it doesn't matter. If I'm wrong on the gospel and wrong on Jesus, fire me. Fire me. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be that strong when it comes to Jesus and the gospel. And all this here, what it boils down to is your epistemology. You know what that word is? It's a super fancy word that says why you believe what you believe. Epistemology is how do you believe what you believe? Why do you say that's true and that's wrong? That's your epistemology, okay? So the reformers come on and there'd been this, this thousand year thing that they kept kind of saying, well, we get truth from all these other things. And so the reformers come and they have these things saying, no, our epistemology is the solas. You guys, have you heard of the solas? Sola scriptura, which is only scripture. Not church history. Not what some guy is saying today and can change his mind tomorrow. Sola scriptura. And sola fide, only faith. And sola gratia, only grace. And sola dea gloria, only glory to God. So they're these solas saying, our epistemology, if it does not fit in these solas, forget it. What is our sola today? <laughs> I have a word, sola felis. You know what it means? How I'm feeling. Our epistemology today for most people, and I actually look at the way that, uh, especially like my daughters talk now, they don't say I think anymore, they say, I feel, I'm always like, why do you say you feel? Why don't you say I think or I know? But it's, it's I feel, because that's the lingo now. It's, not, it's just not objective truth. It's now, this is what I feel. Because I feel this way, it must be true. So I had a young lady like get me after a message and she was upset at me about something. And she's like, you know, I just feel, I just feel that, that you're wrong. And so I said, well, I feel that I'm right. So what do we do? You feel that I'm wrong? I feel that I'm right. Okay, who do we turn to? Who's gonna be right then? Who decides, right? She goes, I, I, I just don't know then. Um, well, well, are you open to other areas? And I said, what do you mean other areas? Are you open to like, because I'm not a Christian. I said, oh, but you're here and Jesus is gonna get you. <laughs> She's like, well, like, Transcendental meditation, are you open to that? I said, no. 
Well, like using a Ouija board, are you open to that? Nope. She says, well, I am. I said, why? Because it felt so exciting when I was doing it. I said, jumping off a building feels super exciting. The problem is the landing. I said, that stuff might feel super exciting, but I'm telling you, there's a bad landing behind it. Be careful, right? And so she, she's, it's all about feeling, all about, I feel, I feel, I feel. I had to say, at some point, sweetie, you have to say, this is where I get my truth. And where I'm at today is it's Jesus, which is what Paul is saying, that my theological lens is Jesus. I run it through him. It's scripture. It's not transcendental meditation. It's not some other religion. It's Jesus. And what I found is this. I found it to be true, rock solid, and I found it works. And that's why I believe in it. And she said, well, I just don't know about that. I said, well, I'm gonna pray for you that one day you will get the truth because you're here right now. And I trust that. This is, this is exactly what Paul is saying. It's Jesus. And it doesn't matter if I move away from Jesus or an angel tells you something different about Jesus, run from that, run from it. It's Jesus. And then he makes one further point and I'll be done here with verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? For if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The accusation against Paul was this. You are soft peddling the gospel to get people to like you, to win friends and influence people. Maybe it's why he said twice for people to go to hell. Cause he's like, no, I'm not. See, I'm no longer doing that. This is not how you win friends and influence people, right? So that was it. Like, hey, you're doing all this stuff. We call it soft grace today or cheap grace, all these stuff. So that was their accusation. Look, so here's what Paul says. Listen, I'm not here to impress you guys or to please you guys. My job is to serve Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's the point. And number two, I am here to serve Jesus. This verse right here was one of the most impacting verses of my life. And I've told people this before. The first five years of preaching at Edgewater, I could summarize it just like this. Please like me. Aren't I smart? First five years of Edgewater. The problem with that kind of preaching is this. It's not very good, number one. And number two, it just puts you on a roller coaster all the time. Because what I wanted was the approval of people like, oh, that was such a great message today. Oh, wow. And if I didn't get that, then I'm on this roller coaster of like, oh, all week long, like, oh, it's so bad. Mm, didn't sleep. Okay, first five years of Edgewater. Took me a couple years to kind of transition out of that. Like these kind of verses, like why am I, why am I so dominated by a person's opinion of me? And now I think, here's how I preach. I find something that is true and it tells me how good Jesus is and how awesome he is. And then I just can't wait to share it. And that little change that is Jesus-centered now, not man-centered. I hope they like this. Now, oh my goodness, Jesus is so good. I gotta share this with somebody. That little change set me free. I think I'm a better preacher too, but it just set me free. I don't even care if I'm not a better preacher. It doesn't matter. 
because I just know this is the right way to do it. My identity was so wrapped up in being a good preacher and having people tell me that, that it was just like, ah, and now my identity is the promise of God that I am now a son of the king. And one day I will rule and reign with him. And that's the good news. And that's so secure that that's my identity. And I'm like, oh, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free from the prison of people's opinion. It'd be nice if people liked me. I'm not against that. But you know what? I've already got the best opinion in the cosmos that says you're my son and I love you. I love you so much I died for you. Oh, when that sinks in, you're so strong. I call it the breastplate of righteousness. It protects your heart. That's the breastplate of righteousness. My heart now is protected from all the opinions of people. Why? Because I've got the best opinion. I've got the good news. I've got the gospel, right? That's what Paul's saying. It's Jesus and me serving him, okay? There, there is it. If you can get those two things in your life, man, you are radical. That it's Jesus, that Jesus is the point. I don't care what people accuse you of, cheap grace, whatever. You're not serious enough. You need to go deeper. I always tell people that you just gotta go deeper. I said, really? I say, Jesus is the deep end of the pool. You're waiting in the kiddie pool. And I should call the cops on you because it's really, really awkward, right? <laughs> it belongs to babies right now that are urinating in there. Get out. <laughs> Jesus is the deep end. Everything else is the kiddie pool. That he is the point. That's what he's saying. When I get to heaven, I'm gonna say to the father, I trusted your son. I trusted your son, right? I trusted his death on my behalf that he paid for my sins. I trusted your son. That's what I'm gonna say. Okay? I'm not gonna say, and I didn't eat bacon, <laughs> right? I mean, think of that for a moment. Just think about that. The little things that we do to try to improve on Jesus, compare him to the death of God, right? So he died for me. The sinless lamb died for me and I didn't eat some bacon, right? Right, right, that's good, huh? It's ridiculous. Don't, what Paul is saying, don't do that. He will say, you're doing, it's the end of chapter, I won't give it away. Read chapter two. He's like, don't do that. Don't try to add to this thing not eating bacon, it'd be like this. It'd be like someone that donated a kidney to somebody. And you're like, yeah, well, I like one of his pictures on Instagram too. There's no comparison. It's like that kind of thing. Don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus is the point. The problem with legalism is this. It's like junk food, isn't it? It makes you feel good for a moment, but it's empty calories. It's totally, it, it, it tastes good, but there's no filling to it and just dries you out and grinds you up. It's like cheap junk food, get off of it. The meat is Jesus. And then number two, number two, Paul just says, I'm not here to serve you guys. As great as you are, as wonderful you as you are, I'm here to serve Jesus. And my service to you is an outpouring of that service to him. And I find my fulfillment from serving him. And my cup runs over. Two huge points that Paul makes and they're brilliant and they'll set you free. So Father, this day, as we come to the table,
It's so easy for us to dine at other tables. But every other table but this table is junk food. That's what it is. It will leave us thirstier, needier, anxious, driven. And so I pray for myself, Lord, because I'm a sheep. And I can easily go astray. We know that our enemy is like a lion, ceaseless, looking, seeking who he may devour, seeking to get us to distort the gospel every single morning, to live lives of anxiety and stress because we haven't found you, our Sabbath, our rest. So I ask as we come to the table tonight, May we dine at the right table. May we feast on the good news. May we be reminded that the king of the universe says we're beautiful and that he loves us so much that he died for us and has claimed us as his own and that one day we will join with him in ruling the cosmos. May we be reminded of that. May we eat and drink of those things this night, I pray.